Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 9. This will be our last time in Luke for the summer. We're going to end this week as we start off in Joshua next week. So I want to encourage you for that for our summer series. We're going to break down some walls during the summer. March around. Get some adventure going on. Luke chapter 9, we're in verse 46 through verse 50. We won't be finishing the whole chapter, just the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. We're talking about striving for status. It seems like we live in a world that people are striving for status. What are you striving for? I've asked this type of question before. What are, what are you living for? What, what gets you up in the morning? What is it that you're striving for? What is it that you truly desire? What gives you value and validates you? What is it that's missing in your life that leads you to, to climb and to grasp for that which you don't have? What do you want from life? Success, happiness, uh, there's all sorts of answers, right? Let me give you some that I that I've saw through the internet this week. Some real answers to the question of what are you striving for? What is it that you desire out of life? <clears throat> One writer says, I live for the love of my friends, my family and others, and myself. I live for the love of change, the love of struggle, the love for challenges, and the love to someday make a difference. I live that I can give love to those that have not received any." Sounds pretty good there. Uh, One other said, I live so that I can help those who pulled over on the roads of life with flat tires, with flat hopes. I live to inspire others, not only to make it easier for them, but so that one day they'll do the same. Good one. Uh, One, I live to have fun. Just honest. I live to experience the many experiences I have yet to experience. Now that's a sentence. I have yet to climb Mount Everest. I have yet to try hang gliding or rock rock climbing. I still haven't swum with the sharks, and I still have not flown an airplane by myself. I have never really partied my life, so I have yet to black out. But before that time of death, when I really do black out. Okay? One, to express my truest nature and see what happens. I think they might be surprised. Here's one last one. As a musician, a poet... A prophet, I would love people to be inspired by me, as egotistical as that sounds. I think when we really look at it, we definitely have a man-centered look of things. Even when we're trying to help others, many times it's, it's polluted with our own desire for self-advancement. Uh, it seems that whether it's sports, entertainments, finance, medical, or other position, professions, people want to be the best. They want to be that one, the employee of the month, the, the greatest. They want the ones with, that we crave hearts and likes and followers and, and all those types of things that social media is really, I think, one of the reasons why it abounds so well is because you can get immediate feedback. You know, I, can, I can post this on Instagram and I can see how many people and I can follow how many people are, are, are liking that or on Twitter or Facebook and so on and so forth, all the other ones. How many pins are of my Pinterest are being on there? 
People spend a tremendous amounts of energy seeking to attain some sense of greatness, even if it is in a small pond. Churches and pastors and Christians are not immune to that desire either. We find the same thing. There's a little title called, a little thing called celebrity pastors. You may know some of them. You know, they become big in their pond or their lake or their river. And some are bigger than others, but they become popular. They, they, they themselves are on Instagram and Twitter trying to find the most likes and, and uh, connections on Google and things and so forth. However, our vision here at OVBC is to develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. And I want to bring this back to us. It's good for us to be reminded of that, especially those of us who are members. We are to be striving to please God. As Paul said, my aim is to please Christ. That's what you and I should be striving for. But I think it's important for us, especially as we get into the summer months, uh, we need to be reoriented to that. Because here, even at OVBC, I, I fear that there's many of us that are striving for things that are temporal and not eternal. And sometimes it takes a big change of life to make that very clear to us. In doing so, we find that you and I must adopt the values of the kingdom rather than the values of the world. In order to do that, we need to reorient our default worldview that says that the world revolves around me. To a biblical worldview that puts everything into the right perspective, that it's all about God. Now, in last week's passage of Luke chapter 9, Luke records the events that happened immediately after Jesus and Peter, James, and, and John come off the mountain from the transfiguration. Remember that? Jesus is, is identified, confirmed as the, as the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And as they walk down, they find that there are nine disciples who are experiencing a public meltdown, a public failure in which they are failing to exercise demons, which they had the power to do so. And we looked at the, the, the pathos of the passion of the father and the plight of the son who has been experienced suffering for some time. As usual, Jesus rectified that situation by using it as a teaching lesson to prepare them for the time when he would no longer be with them. And in that, we shared some things of how, what we can learn from that event. Today, as we come to 46 through 40, we are now at the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Him and his disciples now are gathered, most likely at the home of, of Peter and Andrew there in Capernaum, which was their, their kind of their seat, where they, where they, their seat of operations, their, their home where they were. Jesus is getting ready now to begin his journey to Jerusalem, where in 18 months he knows that he's going to face betrayal, rejection, suffer, be crucified, but yet rise again. And so he's spending some time with them. After sharing a little bit, he's trying to reveal to them bit by bit what, 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 what he's going to experience. But as you and I have noticed, the disciples just aren't getting it, are they? They just can't seem to understand what Jesus is saying. So as we come to this, we see them sitting around their home, but they themselves are striving for status. Their striving for status leads them to develop rivalries 
not only within their own group between each other, between the 12, but also how they view outsiders outside of their camp, their group. After 18 months of learning at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings, receiving private instructions from the Lord, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, their attentions and aspirations are still focused on themselves. Jesus is trying to spend the last short time that he has with them to pour his life into them, to prepare them for the day when he will not be there. He wants to give them the truths, the principles, the values of those that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. However, as you and I come to verse 46, it's here in the monitor, but you also have it in your Bible. Again, I encourage you, bring your Bibles. Uh, this is the year of the Bible. We're almost, by the way, done with the New Testament. I hope you've been joining with us. If not, grab your Bibles. Uh, there's still some time to catch up. Verse 46 of Luke chapter 9, read with me. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the great. Father, give us wisdom to understand this, but also expose within our own hearts, Lord, those vestiges of selfishness and self-centeredness that still reside within us. Lord, even in our striving for success, maybe for, for more money, for housing, for a better job, we may say it's for our family, it's for our children, but yet, Lord, many times as it comes back, it's still for selfish pursuits. Lord, we need to reorient our minds, so do so. We need that from time to time. We confess, Lord, that many times, our most times, I would say, our attention is on ourself and how things affect us. But Lord, let us consider the kingdom this morning and may we respond to those spiritual adjustments we need to make. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Luke tells us that Jesus invades here the personal conversation of his disciples. Jesus is probably off to the side and here's the 12 and they're debating among them which one of them is the greatest. Now, this could have been prompted in the fact that Peter, James, and uh, uh, John were, were allowed to go up into the mountain with Jesus. It seems like those three were the inner circle of Jesus, with John being the one that is described as the one that Jesus loved, and Peter as the spokesman, the one that Jesus always seems to give authority. So maybe that, that's sparking some debate among them about who truly is the greatest. Or maybe it's the fact that they're finally getting somewhat of a hint that, hey, Jesus is saying that he's not going to be here. And if he does, which one of us gets to take the reins? Which one of us gets to be the boss? Could have been jealousy, it could be envy of Peter, James, and John that fueled this question. We may not know here what it is, but something here brings them to debate whether or not which or which one of them is the greatest. Their aspirations, their dreams, and desires we see here are fueled by pride. It seems like the future apostles are not immune to the constant pull of putting oneself first. We see that. We see that in our relationships, in our dynamics with our families, with our spouses at work, that pull to make ourselves first, to make our ideas the one that everyone favors, to, to see ourselves as the one that, that is the most influential. 
Theologian and pastor R.T. France notes that while Jesus' eyes are fixed on martyrdom and the cross coming to him in Jerusalem, the disciples are preoccupied with the question of status. While Jesus is talking of rejection and death, they are apparently thinking of, of a continued moment in which the leadership will be an issue. Disciples are not understanding that Jesus is teaching on the suffering of the Messiah, but instead are jockeying for position in his expected victory over his enemies and the installation of his kingdom. You see, the problem here is the disciples, once again, are misunderstanding Jesus' teaching, just like you and I do. We, we, we probably shouldn't be too, uh, has, or too quick to judge them because they have the same attitudes and mindset as we do. Uh, separated by 2,000 years, but we still have the same foibles, the same sinful reactions. Disciples think of greatness in terms of human endeavor, accomplishment, and status. If I were to ask you, what are some of the greatest Americans who ever lived, you would probably give me people like that. You know, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Eisenhower. Uh, some might say a Reagan, or some might say on Obama. Uh, we would think of, of men of great accomplishment or women. Or you might think of, of, of all time. Then you might still, you're going to think of people of influence. Those that conquered nations or built nations. This is our natural and fallen state. That's how we judge. That's how we value others. Is what do they bring to the table? We always seek to promote ourselves, even in our most charitable moments, we're seeking to lift ourselves up. Robert Stein in the New American Commentary notes that the term greatest can be understood in several ways as who has the most authority? Is it Peter? Is it John? Is it James? Uh, it might be receiving the most preferable treatment. John was the one who, who laid at the bosom of Jesus' breast, as we see in John. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It could be the most valuable. Which disciple is the most viable? We, or valuable? We may look at that. Who's the most valuable player in the you know, major leagues, in the NBA? Or being most favored by God? What is greatness? And with their pride and pettiness, it's exposed here as they once again are silenced in the face of Jesus' demonstration. As he uses that as a teaching moment. He takes a moment to illustrate what defines greatness in the kingdom of God. I think we have something. Here we go. In the kingdom of God, greatness is reserved. Listen to this. Greatness is reserved in the kingdom of God. Greatness is reserved for those that seek the glory of God. Not for themselves. Thank you for whoever said that. It's for those that, it is not for those that seek after honor for themselves. To illustrate this point, Jesus uses a child to demonstrate the qualifications of those that are considered great in the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson remarks that a child is held up as an ideal. Not of, of innocence or purity or of faith, but of humility and unconcerned for social status. Knowing this dynamic of what's happening here, Jesus warns that the only one who will receive this child, or excuse me, that Jesus warns that only the one who will receive a child will receive Christ. And only those who will receive Christ will receive the Father. Now, this is countercultural, especially uh, in that time of day. 
Because as Robert Stein remarks in his commentary, in the first century, a child was an insignificant, weak member of society, not even thought of. Typically, they would leave their child to die in the woods, in nature, if they did not want them. And so a child exemplified one who is the least, one you would not consider. In other words, a child is not capable of helping one gain more status. They cannot testify in court for you. They cannot be used as a reference for a resume or a reference for a job. They cannot be considered at all. They're not even considered at all. As the saying goes, children should be seen and what? Not heard. But in this case, it's like Jesus saying, listen, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't be like Rob. Don't aspire to be Rob or Landon or one of the worship members, worship team. He's saying, no, he says, be like Cole, be like Michael, be like Nolan, be like Aiden. Now, our first thought is, what in the world? There's no way they're the innocent little babies, right? We all, we, we, we've, we've done nursery duty, right? Or, or watched them in some regard. But he's not talking about their innocence or their purity. Those, those children are just as, as sinners who are condemned to hell and will experience the wrath of God unless God grants them his mercy. But he's talking the fact that a child cannot enhance your standing. It's a child who will receive anyone. You know, we talk about this all the time. Kids, for the most part, are taught racism or prejudice or biases, for the most part, are they not? I mean, they learn those types of things. A, a kid, for the most part, is it, now they're very truthful too, <laughs> but they're accepting, right? That's what God is saying in this, is that we need to recognize that we should not view each other or try to value ourselves by what type of status we are or what we can do or what someone can do for us. The first lesson is that the least is the most willing to humble themselves. So here's what he's trying to tell them. Honor comes through humility. If you want to be the greatest, you must be the least. We saw that with John the Baptist. Remember, the greatest who ever lived among men, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And so if you want great status in the kingdom of God, then you need to be the least. Now, see, here the thing is, is I think here's the challenge. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? And you say, well, of course. Well, let's go back and look at the cost of being in the kingdom of God. The cost of being in the kingdom of God is to, to deny yourselves, to pick up your cross daily, and to follow him. It's to give all that up. It doesn't matter how many Instagram followers, Facebook, Twitter followers I have. It doesn't matter how influential. It doesn't matter what my job description or how big my investments are or my retirement account is or the, or the vacation places that I go to. What really matters is that I am humble that I display humility, that I have received Christ and therefore I receive the Father. For without that, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the second event is found in verse 49. We receive the same striving. 
But this one is different. In the first one, they're striving among themselves. Now they're striving against others on the outside. Look at the verse here. Jesus answered, Master, or John, excuse me, answered, Master, he's concerned. There's something bad happening there in Capernaum. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Why? Because he did not follow us. What a tragic event is happening here. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out in the name of Jesus, but he is not of us. But Jesus said to him in verse 50, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is what? For you. Thank you. John's use of the pronoun we indicates that all the disciples were concerned about this exorcist. It seems like their pride has led them to consider other miracle workers as outsiders who should not be tolerated, who should not be welcomed, who should be stopped at all costs. This exorcist is casting out demons in the name of, of, of Jesus, and, and the man is successful. It's not like he, he is not doing it. They're admitting that he's successful. He's not against Jesus. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus. He's not an adversary or trying to compete with Jesus. But he's just not of their main body of followers. He might have been a Christ follower. We do not know. Maybe he had just saw the power of Jesus and was doing the same thing and God was blessing it for some reason. That Sometimes that kind of stuff, God allows that, God uses that. But in this case, for some reason, he was just not part of their group. He recognized the power of Jesus' name. He seemed to be a believer of Christ, though we're not sure. We're not told. But Jesus identifies him as one that is not against you. In other words, here is one that is working on the same side. The problem was that not only was not of the group, but he was also successful. Remember. The disciples are probably still embarrassed of their own inability to cast out a demon just a short time ago. And here is a man who is doing it, who was not given authority by Jesus, who was not part of the inside group. R.T. France writes that the failures of the disciples is represented at its most basic level in that Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status, speaking of children, but now they have refused partnership with the one who did not share the status they assumed for themselves. So they said, no, we are teachers and followers of Jesus. We have the authority to, to uh, cast out demons, but this man should not. So their rivalry is a little bit different. The lesson here is to be ready to receive those who you normally would reject. And we do that. I I'm guilty of that very quickly myself. France writes of the open borders of the kingdom of God. Instead of creating cliques and competing and arbitrary boundaries, we are to see other people that are, that are, that are followers of Christ as brothers and sisters. Any group has the right to decide its own boundaries and its parameters in which it will define itself. OBVC, we're no different. We, it's, we've been talking about a membership class. We have, we have certain requirements that we ask for those who, are, who become uh, uh, members. And I, I want to encourage you to take that class. I think I say June 27th, I believe. It's the last Sunday of the month. It's about two to three hours. Uh, there's, dinner is going to be provided. We'll, we'll, we'll try to provide child care for you. But as we see there, we need to understand 
that we must not draw these boundaries outside of Scripture. And what is is driving these two things is their pride. They're just so prideful. Pride led them to develop boundaries. They're trying to say who is in and who is out. He says he does not follow us. Their their pride also led them to to boundaries that led them to uh, competition. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. This guy, he's competing against us. And then competition led them to be, to be unloving to others. You need to stop them. So you see a progression. Progression leads them, or pride leads them to develop boundaries. Boundaries lead to competition. Competition leads to unloving. You and I need to be careful that our pride does not lead down that same road. It will. I guarantee it. The disciples are protecting their status. We are the disciples of Christ. We are the ones that are giving power. To have someone that was not one of them could not be tolerated. They had become cliquish and saw anyone outside of their group as a competition and a threat to that group. You may ask, well, what is a clique? Well, cliques are small, exclusive group of people that gather together based on some likes and dislikes, maybe. And many times we may ask the question, well, are, are cliques sinful? And I, and I would have to tell you, yes and no. We all naturally click, right, with certain people. There's some that we just do not. The Bible tells us, as much as possible is within you, live with others peaceably. Knowing that there's just some people, you're just the personalities or just something's not going to do it. We all have natural boundaries, likes, and dislikes that connect us. People typically connect and group themselves with others that are like them. Normally, there's nothing wrong or sinful about this. You put people in a room, they just naturally will be drawn in some type of way to different groups of people. However, cliques can be and are sinful when you exclude others just because they are not like you. That's what's important. Give me an example. Maybe there's a clique in a group in which it's all the, we'll use ladies in this case, no, no, no condemnation here, but they're ladies that like to quilt. So all of a sudden the ladies develop some type of quilting clique, right? They meet. But then all someone comes and, and wants to be part of their group or, or just wants to say hi and says, well, do you quilt? Well, no. I don't, I don't think quilting is something I enjoy. Okay, well, so long. And you exclude that person from your group, from your, from your social contact, maybe in your spiritual group. That's when cliques become wrong. And we can see this type of attitude clearly in our politics going on right now. With intersectionality, with our schools, they're dividing our children. Social media, religion. We are critical of anyone that has a different philosophy, worldview, racial makeup, or economic status. Not only, uh, critical, critical, we, not only are we critical against them, we want to silence them. And that's what's happening. And we're complaining because that's happening to us now. And we don't like that. But it, it's kind of hypocritical. Hypocritical. To say that when they've been doing it to others for so long. We make close boundaries through denominations, through national, 
race, economics, political, and theological. When Jesus tells them they should not stop stop that man, he is simply pointing out that once the exorcist was successful, he would not turn against Jesus. He would continue to speak highly of Christ and understand the true power of Jesus. The disciples are to focus on their task and leave the rest up to God. Stay in your lane as that phrase now has come a little bit more popular. Not being quick to criticize others who also follow Christ, but do not belong to their group. We're seeing, if you're on Twitter, man, I tell you, Twitter is like a Christian battle. It's like gladiator time. I don't even say anything anymore on Twitter. I just, I'm, I'm just a voyeur. I just look and like and retweet and just try to stay out of the mess. But Christians are just picking up their swords and going each other because they might be of a different like of some sort. And so we need to be careful that here at OVC, we do not do the same thing. But however, with saying that, that generous uh, uh, acceptance of others does not apply to those who do not follow Christ at all. One is either with Jesus or against him. In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus warns, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So we will not make any apologies for when we call out publicly any pastor or church that is preaching a false gospel or is denying the sufficiency and the errancy and necessity and, and, and clarity of Scripture. That's what we're going through with the American gospel. And if you have not seen the first one yet, please let me know. I have the DVD or you can watch it, I think, for free on Amazon or on YouTube. I love free. You need to understand you have family and friends that are, that are following the wrong people. And we need to be publicly calling out false teachers for what they are. The second lesson that we should learn is that we should willingly receive all of God's children. We need to willingly receive all of God's children. Now, I believe that's based on doctrine. It's based on the unity of Christ's word. But we shouldn't even not be so sharp with those boundaries that we're casting out brothers and sisters because we do not like how they may do church. We may debate over mythology, mythology over different things that do not matter. Now, guys, I want to take a moment here, and this is just speaking to the family here. The question I want to ask is, does OVBC have this problem? I know we're a small church. We're just one big click ourselves. But with any small church, there's still going to be clicks. And I see it. I understand it. There are some people who feel they are the in and they're striving for that. I don't think we have, you know, I'm thankful. I don't think we have a church that or people are striving for aspirations. I've been at this church where I've had people vying for my position and, for, and to put me down. I've never felt that in the last 2007, so someone do the math for me. I can't do any long. 14 years of the 15, 16 years I've been here. I, I've never experienced that, and I'm thankful for you. Uh, there's not people who are vying for elderships and deacons and ready to hurt others to do so. So thank you. I do want you to aspire to being an elder, aspire to be a deacon, aspire to be a teacher, aspire to be a, a, a dynamo for the kingdom of God. I, I do want to say that. But sometimes we do struggle 
with accepting all people. Now, some of that may be because, especially in the last year, we haven't been able to do what we normally do. Our, you know, our church has always been known as a church that was very friendly, loving, and kind. And we used to kind of demonstrate that at the beginning. We, we haven't been able to do that. So maybe it, 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 has, it has magnified. But I know that, that there are sometimes that people are feeling left out. That they feel like they don't belong. That people do not say hi to them or, or are curt to them or, or maybe unbeknownst to them, they're, they're, they're not responding. And sometimes it's just we don't always recognize those things, right? We're, we come, we're busy. I, this is what I'm trying to share with you is that when we come here, this is family time. And so we need to recognize that we are to use our spiritual gifts to the least of those to those that are in, aren't in positions of power or people who are in the know. The people who, who are not able to go to a small group with us and do life together or, or, or come to Sunday school. Not everyone is able to do that. Now, I encourage you, find ways to do that. Go to the ladies' retreats. Go to the breakfasts. Go to those types of things. Get involved. If you're complaining that no one is liking you or, uh, and you're being standoffish, then some of that is you. Now, I'm just, I'm just speaking some truth here, okay? This is Rob's opinion. This is not the word of God. So I, I can be judged and held in contempt for that. And if the elders need to, need to uh, teach me, they, they can do so well afterwards. But I know there are some of you that have felt out, and I apologize for that. And I think some of it is just because the last year we haven't been able to do family like we used to. We haven't been able to do our events. But I encourage you, see people when they're here. If you don't know them, get to know them. Things are opened up. Invite them to lunch. Invite them over to your home. Several years ago, we made a uh, important thing that we want hospitality to be a key figure of Orangeville Bible Church. And we've done that somewhat well until COVID hit. It's time to bring that back. Uh, one of the new ways in which we're ministering because of COVID, you see that we're not doing a lot of events here. We're now developing what's called a kitchen table ministry in which we're trying to get to your homes and get to see you personally because I believe that that's where discipleship is. So you're going to see me. Hey, can I come over? Can I come and visit? I, I want our elders, our deacons. I want you to do that as well. Some of you have great homes that you can invite others. Maybe some others don't, but invite them to a park. Get your children. We have so many. These children should not have people that, you know, they should not be alone. They sh there should be play days during the week when you're able to. Now, I know I may be stepping on some toes, but I want to share with you, there are people who have been hurt here because they felt left out. Let's not do so. The Bible tells us to show more honor, to outdo one another. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. I want us to love and care for each other. And I appreciate many of you have done that. And I don't think you've done it aware of doing it. But it does happen even in a small group. So get outside of your natural groups. Start talking and encouraging one another. Now I've spent 10 minutes outside of my message. And now I'm going to have to do some cutting. 
But I don't want us to have this type of problem where there's those who are involved and those who aren't. Those who are in, those who are not. We need to be considered of those who are not, maybe in this season of life, able to do things that they normally would do. We have to be aware of that. But we also need to be encouraging to sometimes we need to bring them along. Maybe they just don't know how to. And so I, I pray that you would open up your minds and your hearts to all. And let's have that type of attitude in which we're, we're not prideful, but we're humble. And we're seeking to honor others. Both of these events demonstrate that the kingdom of God operates differently from the world. And that's what we need to do here. When we come in here, this needs to be kingdom living. That's putting aside your aspirations, your dreams, your desires, your expectations to serve others. That's why God has given you a spiritual gift. If you don't know what your gift is, see me. Let me take you through it. I can help you develop it. And the only way that you're really going to know what your spiritual gift is not through taking a test, but it's by doing what you do. It will naturally come to you and God will bless it. We have a pride problem. Pastor John MacArthur writes that the way to preeminence in Christ's kingdom is by sacrifice and self-denial. What would this church be like if that was preeminent in our church? Sacrifice and self-denial. How would that change your family? The dynamic between your husband and your, and your wife? Between you and your children? Instead of proclaiming yourself and your kingdom and what you deserve and what you should get. You need to be looking. How can I serve? In my suffering. In my lack. In my want. How can I serve others? Now the antidote to pride is the gospel. It's here that we find how you and I can defeat pride that just comes so natural to us. This striving for status. God seeks out the humble. He seeks out the servant that he may receive them to himself. The scripture we read of humility, you see it here on the screen. If Ben is able to find out where I'm at, sorry, Ben. Psalms 34 2. Can you read this out loud with me? We don't do this much. Ready? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. How about Proverbs 22.4? The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Matthew 5.3, you know this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But could you read James 4.6 just so you got to get it? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's read that again. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you considered the fact that you don't have the grace of God because you haven't been humble? Because your, God, your pride has been preventing you? Look at this next note by this quote by Pastor John MacArthur. It's on the monitor, I believe. Humility is the recognition of our own sinfulness and unworthiness. It is recognizing a lack of accomplishment, achievement. And that you cannot do anything to earn the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. That's what the gospel is. In Philippians 2, the apostle Paul encourages us to follow the example of Christ. When he says, who though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself 
By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. One young preacher, Ben, that you might recognize, Dustin Saunders, in his message on this passage several years ago, September 2014, by the way, he wrote this. He said, think about it with me. Jesus didn't die in old age. He didn't die in prosperity. He didn't die a respected man. He died a shameful, disgraceful death, utterly (coughs) humiliated. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter to the Philippians, is going to emphasize in our passage today. This is when he was preaching this passage to you. He says the shocking truth is, is that Paul is going to urge us as believers in Jesus Christ to be like him in his willingness to suffer and to be humiliated. He is going to urge us to go out of our way to put our brothers and sisters' needs ahead of our own. To sacrifice life and limb for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of each other. There's going to be a time where that's going to be truly tested here at OVC. Again, this is countercultural and it runs smack dab into the old sinful habits that still reside in our regenerated hearts. In James 4, this passage, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Disciples were having in front of Jesus. He says, Is it not this? Is that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot hate. Now, when you think murder, that's hating your brother. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Then Jesus says, you adulterous people. Why? What is he calling us adulterous? Because we left the God who loves us for another lover. Ourselves. Instead of desiring the promises of that who we've been betrothed to. Jesus. We're seeking the passions and the satisfaction of another woman. The passions of our own heart. The things of the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. My friend, don't be an enemy of God. Don't let pride put you on the opposite side of the kingdom. Pride will keep you out of the kingdom of God. This is where the gospel comes in. Why I encourage you to remind you of the gospel primer to read it. It reminds us that we are now children and friends of God, no longer under the power of sin. We've been set free from our enslavement to sin and its demands. Timothy, uh, Pastor Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, writes this. You'll see it here on the monitor. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Well, right there, let's stop. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that? Or are you now in your mind justifying yourself that you're not that bad? Yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Now, we like, we like that one, yeah. I'm so valuable that Jesus died for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. 
It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. And I, can, I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. That is difficult to do. Let us hold to this gospel. Let's follow the words of James 4.10, where he calls to humble ourselves before the Lord. Then he'll exalt us. I'm getting near the end. Seeking the kingdom of God means these two things. It means seeking after the glory of God rather than our own. It means seeking after the glory of God above our own. That's our key verse, seeking first the kingdom of God. But it also means seeking after the honor of others above our own. Seeking the, uh, after the honor of others above our own. Disciples were failing to do this. In Romans 12, 10 and 16, it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, with the person who cannot advance your kingdom. Never be wise in your own sight. All sin finds its source in pride. It's pride that caused Satan to rebel against God. It was pride that caused Eve to take the forbidden fruit. It was pride that led Adam to rebel against the Creator. Pride has brought all of humanity under the curse of death. But let me tell you this. Pride is a two-sided coin. Now think of this. When you think of pride, you think of someone who's just full of themselves. But pride is a two-sided coin. Yes, it is that man who is so filled of himself that he only brags on himself all the time. But on the other side of of that pride coin is self-pity and low esteem. Because it's that kind that still says, I still desire this. It's still thinking of yourself, even if you're pitying yourself. So both sides are, are the same coin, just different sides. Both focus on self. As long as we are focused on ourselves, either on what we deserve or a pity party, we are not focused on the mission of God. And that's what Satan desires you to do. What is our mission? To love God and to love our neighbors. We need for it to be a church that seeks to be humble. Without it, you and I will fail. And I am concerned that Orange Villa may be on the wrong track if we do not recapture this and let this be our guiding light, to love God and to love others. Our strategy, reach out in worship to God, to reach in by discipling and and caring for one another, and then reaching out by sharing the gospel and, and and, and loving others, Uh, are meeting needs with love. We must always keep in mind the words of Paul. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy. Whoever thus serves God is acceptable and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Disciples in these two instances are failing to do that. Let us not fail in that regard. And let me come to the conclusion. This ties us well with us today as we observe and celebrate communion and community here. The Apostle Paul informs us in Romans 12 that for as in one body we have many members. We are one body, Orangeville Bible Church. 
We are part of the body of Christ. And the members do not all have the same function, same status, the same power, the same gifting. So though we are many, though, we are still one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of it. He then goes on to the Corinthian church, and he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, speaking of the blood, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are, many are made one body. So as you and I meet together, and as we celebrate this and observe this together, it is making us one, reminding us that we've been brought together and we are to have the mind of Christ, of unity. Though we are from many different backgrounds, ethnically, socially, and economically, we are united through Christ and the gospel. We are all brothers and sisters here. I am no more valuable in the kingdom of God than you are. You are no more valuable than that which we might consider least in the kingdom of God. We are all united through Christ and the gospel. Again, quoting Paul, he says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit, we are all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. We are all made to drink one spirit. For the body does not consist of one mem member, but of many. So when you and I participate here in a few moments in communion, we are participating as one body with those of our African brothers in the continent of Africa that love Christ and are taking it. Those of Tanzania, those that are in the Middle East, those in the house churches of China, those of Europe, and those in the faraway places where the gospel has been shared and accepted, believed, so you and I are joining in something in which all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may no be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I want you to care for much for Paige as we may do for Sally. For joy, for rod. For we are all one members together, brought together. And we want to encourage you, if you have not joined us in membership, then do so. Become part of the body of Christ, a visible expression of an invisible church. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There is no striving for status. We rejoice in all, we suffer with all. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Let's be committed to rooting out all the vestiges of pride and pursuing humility as children of God. Thank you. With every head bowed and I right close, I just want us to take a moment to pause. I know I've taken some time this morning. And I just want to consider what has been said. Look at your own hearts. What role does pride play? It might be time to confess that and repent of it. In turn, maybe you need to go to someone and say, listen, I haven't been as loving to you as, as I should.
I haven't cared for you as I should. Maybe it's time to join the church, be baptized, or maybe it's time for you just to come to know the Lord. You're not part of the kingdom of God yet. If not, I pray that you would. I pray right now that the Father will begin to draw you to him, that the Holy Spirit will enlighten your heart to the beauty of Christ. Accept him today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. I pray that you would eradicate all vestiges of pride in our hearts. Lord, that we would be a church that shows honor to each and every member of the church. That we value the dignity of any visitor that may come. No matter where they're from, no matter how much they make, no matter what they look like, no matter what they drive. Father, that we would see that we are all members of the body of Christ. And for those that have not yet, Lord, that we would encourage them and love them by our gentleness and by our kindness, that they would come to know you. Show us the ways in which we have not shown humility as men, with our wives, with our children, with our employees, employers, with each other. I pray that you would make a way for the kingdom of God for each and every one of us. Let us live in such a way that glorifies you. We thank you for those that are here this morning. Our hearts go towards those that are not able to join us. Tom, Lori, pray that you continue to bless them. Let us not forget them. For those that still have not yet returned, whether it's here in the English service or in the Spanish service, that they would quickly come back to your body. I pray that COVID would continue to um, be diminished. Father, that we would see your church rise, people coming back. Lord, that you may be glorified in all things. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.